Hello, this is your fertility pharmacist. This podcast is for women who are trying to overcome infertility. If you keep a pulse on late-breaking fertility research, it could positively alter the course of your fertility journey like it has for me. Hi, I'm Elise, your fertility pharmacist. Today's podcast episode is about infertility-related harassment in the workplace. I also want to apologize right off the bat. I have been sick, but ready to hopefully podcast now. The research was published online last week in the International Archives of Occupational and Environmental Health. It's part of a Japanese female employment and mental health in artificial reproductive technology study, for short known as JFEMA. I chose to cover this research for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think I've covered anything related to infertility in Japan on the podcast before. And two, women being harassed at work for infertility treatment, that's a topic that really does need further exploration and increased awareness. To adequately cover this research, I'll get into the background of the study, talk about the results, then conclude with weaknesses and top takeaways. As mentioned, the research came from Japan, a country where there have been eyebrow-raising declines in birth in the past 50 years. In 1970, there were nearly 2 million babies born. 50 years later, 2020, there were only 840,000 babies born. That's over a 50% drop in births. It's been mainly attributed to Japanese women becoming more educated and gainfully employed. In Japan, 31 is the average age for a woman to have her first child, whereas in the U.S., that average age is closer to 27. Because women are working more and having kids later, Japan has seen a surge in the use of IVF to conceive. They have the highest number of IVF cases in the world. Along with the increased use of IVF, there's also been an increased awareness that workplace harassment is quite common in Japan. A 2015 survey of 37 countries found that Japan ranked number three for workplace harassment by colleagues and bosses. If you're curious, the countries with higher harassment scores were Australia and India. Then, a 2020 survey showed that 13% of women felt sexual harassment and almost 30% felt power harassment in the workplace. With workplace harassment unfortunately being pretty common in Japan, and with more women using IVF to conceive, the authors of this study figured that infertility-related harassment has to be going on in the workplace too. To learn more about infertility-related harassment in the workplace, the authors devised an anonymous self-administered questionnaire, which for brevity, I'll call a survey. Women going to one of four fertility clinics in Tokyo were asked to fill out the survey. They could participate if they were ages 22 to 54 and were working at the time when they started fertility treatment. The survey took place over a few months in 2018, so these were pre-COVID working conditions. Women were excluded from participating in the research if they were new to the fertility clinic, if they were not working at the start of fertility treatment, or if they were not working at the time of taking the survey. While it might seem cruel to exclude women for not working, that was the whole point of the survey, to figure out which working women were suffering on the job for trying to treat their infertility. The paper writing up this research unfortunately did not include the specific questions the survey asked, in either Japanese or in English, but we do know the women were asked basic info about their age, education, where they lived, and about their infertility treatment. The work-related questions were about the total number of company employees, what kind of employment the woman had, 
if she had disclosed to the workplace that she was undergoing fertility treatment and if she'd experienced harassment at work after starting the infertility treatment. Now that you know how the study was set up, let's get into the results. Roughly 1,100 women participated in this study, and on average, these women had started infertility treatment shortly before turning age 37. Amongst these 1,100 women, 82 of them, or 7.4%, reported that they had experienced infertility harassment at work. Using a U.S. statistics program to analyze their data, the results showed that significant differences existed in whether a woman was harassed for infertility treatment at work based on if she disclosed her infertility treatment to the workplace and based on how many times the woman had done IVF. Unfortunately, the women who told the workplaces about the treatment and the women who had endured more IVF cycles had significantly higher risks of being harassed. They also found that older women were at a lower risk of being harassed than younger women. However, there was data missing on the women's ages that may have impacted the results. They did not find differences based on education, location, workplace size, or employment type. Say a person was a contractor or a part-time worker or a permanent worker that did not impact harassment. When reflecting on the results, the authors felt that the association between the number of IVF cycles and infertility harassment was pretty easy to explain. The explanation was essentially, if you're doing more IVF cycles, then you're probably absent more frequently from work. Therefore, your teammates may look negatively upon you for being absent so much. The authors also suspected that even women who are present at work and are doing IVF on the side would also be punished by the coworker group, explaining it with a term called presenteeism which is when a worker is present at work, but not working at full potential due to a health condition. In this case, the authors speculated that the fatigue and pain associated with ovarian stimulation cycles caused presenteeism. Regarding the increased risk for harassment after disclosing infertility treatment at work, the authors suspected that disclosing infertility could lead to stigma since so many people are ignorant about reproductive health. The solution to combat the ignorance, they believe, is better fertility education in school systems. While I agree with their recommendation, I suspect that the women in the study who didn't disclose infertility, they were also likely still suffering at work. Maybe they sat through numerous nauseating conversations with a pregnant coworker who kept blabbing on and on about her impending due date, mainly because the infertile woman kept her struggles private. I wonder if being forced to suffer through conversations like that, that make you want to cry your heart out, do those count as harassment? This brings me to what bothered me most in the study, which is that it never wound up explicitly defining harassment anywhere in the paper. Did they define harassment within the actual survey so that all the respondents had a baseline knowledge and common understanding of how to interpret questions? After reading that paper multiple times, I infer the authors themselves were following a loose definition of harassment as being, quote, negative words and actions against fertility treatment, unquote. But I'm going to contrast this deficiency with an absolutely brilliant paper on sexual harassment. Yes, for the first time on this podcast, I'm calling a paper brilliant. The authors on the brilliant paper had been all harassed in some capacity while working as researchers in the field of sexual medicine and they cogently laid out definitions for harassment, 
how and where it was taking place, and suggestions for solutions. I'm posting a link in the show notes to this brilliant paper. I really think it's a must-read. Back to the Japanese paper. Even if the authors sort of knew what they were trying to define, I question if their survey explained the definition sufficiently to the women, because the women were filling out the survey themselves without opportunities to ask questions to an administrator or to leave questions or comments within the survey itself, I wonder if a better designed survey would have received different results. Questions that should also be asked in a workplace and infertility harassment survey include, who is doing the harassment? Is it a boss or a coworker? Is the harasser male or female? Is it multiple coworkers or just one awful coworker? Does a woman's job level or status within the company have anything to do with risks for infertility harassment? We need to know this information in order to best support women who simultaneously work and try to overcome infertility. Despite its weaknesses, the study provoked a lot of thought. I've been planning to share stories of when I couchsurfed my way through Japan when I was traveling solo at 23, or stories of when I worked at a very Japanese company at their U.S. satellite office, but there was really too much to unbundle in this harassment research to take on a more comedic turn. And that brings me to my top two takeaways. One, harassment in the workplace over infertility treatment. It's truly a thing in Japan. It's probably happening in other countries too. Two, in order for women to not feel stigmatized or harassed at work for this very stressful health problem, there needs to be a better education in the workplace. Maybe they can make employees review HR-related training, check boxes, understanding, maybe even answer questions on it. Scenarios on infertility should be included. As I'm wrapping up the episode, I want to make sure to note that I am including in the show notes links that relate to the legal protections of women in the U.S., who are facing workplace discrimination over infertility treatment. There are other links too, but these are actually the most important. I'll call them out in the resource section. If you haven't been there yet, the website for the podcast is www.yourfertilitypharmacist.com. And that concludes today's episode. This is Your Fertility Pharmacist. Thanks for tuning in. 